You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. My name's Tim Coe. Today on the episode, we've got the great honour of talking to adjunct professor Tan C. Lee, the president of the Singapore College of Family Physicians. Welcome, C. Lee, and thanks for talking to us today. Oh, thank you very much, Tim. It's, uh, it's a great honour to be here. It was great to be speaking with you again. Silly, we're going to talk about general practice in Singapore. Having spoken to you before, there's, there's lots of things that we have in common between Australia and Singapore in our systems. Yeah. Can you start by describing what an average day is like for a GP in Singapore? Well, uh, we, we have GPs working in various settings. Some, like me, work in very traditional practices. We work most days and we work evenings as well. Some of my colleagues work very long hours and we could easily clock in a 10, 12-hour day, six days a week. Some of us work in practices that take care of corporate clients and most of these clinics would operate regular office hours. And there's some of us who work in government polyclinics, which are akin to the bulk billing clinics in Australia. The vast majority of GPs and family physicians do not see patients in hospital, although there are some of us who do work in community hospitals. There are GPs and family physicians who work in transitional care, and they are based in, in the hospitals. As I was sharing with you earlier, you know, quite a few of us do teach medical students. I was just taking some students yesterday today. And in fact, I do teach students from all three of our local medical schools. So it sounds remarkably similar. I mean, just by way of comparison, Seeley, how many patients would you say see in an average day? Well, for a day, we would probably see somewhere between 100 to 150 patients a day. And that would be for two doctors. So that would be about 75 a day. Yeah, that's a busy day. It must be exhausting. Uh, yeah, it is. At our age, beginning to find that the work takes its toll and we've had to cut back a little bit and we don't do as many nights anymore. So when we don't do so many nights, we're probably seeing about 50 a day each. You mentioned that you have government polyclinics as well as private. What kind of ratios are there of government clinics to private clinics? Well, I think if we look in terms of human resource, I think polyclinics would account for 20% of the primary care resources, whereas uh, private GP clinics would account for 80%. But for the polyclinics, they have a lot of government subvention, so they would tend to see much more chronic disease patients, patients with hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, than say the average GP clinic. So it sort of balances out here. Just on that note, Celie, can you explain how the healthcare system works in Singapore? So how do people access their GP? Right. Well, it's it's highly varied, as I just mentioned to you. They are the government polyclinics, and these clinics are heavily subsidized. Patients can walk in to queue, or more often than not, they make a, an online appointment. And once they're in the practice, in the clinic, in the polyclinics, they have access to all the bells and whistles, and they are heavily funded, as I mentioned, by uh, subventions from the government. Then there are the private GPs, and in these practices, patients who access these clinics can pay via a number of methods, either by insurance scheme, government medical benefit cards, or as pure private patients. And to date, there is no capitation as in other countries like New Zealand or the UK. So what, as a ballpark, what would a patient pay to see a private GP in, in Singapore, Sealy? The cost varies. I mean, some patients would pay just, what, 25 to $30 for consultation plus medication. Some yeah. uh, would pay much more than that. 
But if uh, in a polyclinic, it is very standard. They pay very low consultation fees, about maybe $8. And as I mentioned to you, the drugs are heavily subsidized. So cost of going to a polyclinic is very, very much cheaper. So it sounds like a, a good umbrella system that covers sort of all tiers of socioeconomic status and, and health for Singapore. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Having looked at different health systems across the world, you realise health systems really evolve to match the, the people in the country that they represent. So it's an evolution over time, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's true. In our country in the 1950s and 60s, we were a very young country. The percentage of elderly was very low. We had a, a young, able-bodied population and they didn't have much chronic disease. But now, in 2019, we are seeing many more elderly, and they come along with all their illnesses. So we've had our health system has had to evolve to be able to take into account these problems, these problems with chronic illness. And accordingly, our health services have to, had to evolve as well. Our training has had to evolve as well. And kind of funding has had to change to take into account the vast increase in chronic disease management. So same problems as Australia, just a different place. Yes, that's right. And, and different funding, yes. different funding models. Yeah. So there's a big cultural difference between Singapore and Australia. Describe some of the, the cultural and demographic mixes of, of people that, that you see. Well, I think the younger people and those less than 60, many of them would be quite modern. They would be of all races. They would know how to use the internet. They would be savvy. They would be connected. They would know about their health. They would know how to, to Google their illnesses or what they think is wrong with them. And they would have an opinion. And we have to take care of their needs needs, address their concerns, and manage them as best we can. And of course, we have the older patients. The patients are more in their 60s and 70s and above. And many of these may not be so conversant in, say, English. They may be speaking their own languages, their dialects, Malay or Tamil or or the Chinese dialects, and they would be much more trusting in doctors that they see, and they would have a lot of chronic disease, and we have to manage them. So in a sense, those are, are the big difference that you, we see. Of course, because of where I work, I do see a lot of different types of patients, and many of my patients have been living in the same town for more than 30 years and we have my practice literally grown with them and of course when I have patients who are older we've had to try our best to make sure that we can communicate well with them in their language so that they can uh, understand their problems and that we can help to jointly manage the problems together which is the aim. I think cultural differences we do have a lot of traditional medicine in Singapore traditional Chinese medicine traditional Malay medicine, uh, their herbal remedies and so on. And we have to work around all these different beliefs and cultural expectations that they would have. Do you have these traditional types of medicine in, in Australia as well? Yeah, we do. We, we have a mix of what we'd call alternative medical providers who, yeah. I think there's different attitudes to, to interfacing with them. Yeah. So it's a challenge though, isn't it, as a GP? Yes. Well, it, it is a challenge, but sometimes we just need to sort of plumb the cultural significance of it in a sense. In many cases, there are ways of understanding why traditional Chinese medicine is used in a certain way. And sometimes to understand the mechanics of how they understand disease, sometimes I would use their language to explain their medical problem in a way that they can understand. And that can drive 
positive health behavior. And I always feel that when we're in a specific cultural context, we have to adapt to it and uh, use the tools that we have, which is basically understanding the, the cultural background and using that to uh, deliver the care that we think is best for our patients. In terms of language diversity, Celia, how many languages would you consult in? All right. Well, from the beginning, yes, of course, I would have been uh, using English most of the time in my training and so on. And as I started to work in Singapore, I realized that I've got to be using other languages. So I speak Mandarin, I speak several dialects, I speak Hokkien, and I speak Cantonese, and I speak Teochew. I can understand some Hakka and, as well. I speak a bit of Tamil because I have Tamil patients. I speak a bit of uh, Bengali because I've got Bengali patients. I learn along the way and my patients teach me. And in fact, I learned Malay from my staff and my patients and they teach me all sorts. So it's, uh, I, I'm always learning. I've just counted eight languages that you've consulted in there, Siwe. So a lot more diverse than what I would do in, in one day anyway. Well, it comes at the neighborhood. So yeah, <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> okay, let's talk more generally about what's really good about the Singapore health system. So what do you think is working really well in the Singapore health system and particularly in primary care? And what can Australians and Australian GPs learn from Singapore? Well, I think uh, what we have in Singapore is we have a health savings scheme. Just like you would say for your pension, we have almost like a health pension scheme, which is called MediSave. So basically, this is an account that's owned by the patient, by the individual. And every month from the salary, there is a compulsory deposit into this MediSave. And the MediSave account is not a pooled account. It's an individual's account with an individual's name on it. And it's ours. And we put it in our account and it paid interest every year on the amount of money that's inside. So it belongs to us. So we get to use it. Employers will also have to make compulsory monthly deposits into this account as well. A portion of their salaries goes into this as well. And Patients can draw from this MediSave account to pay for hospitalization bills and other medical expenses. We can, in general practice, draw from the MediSave to pay for, for medical services and drugs for our patients. The other thing that the government does do is it heavily subsidizes the polyclinics and patients can access these services in the polyclinics and enjoy their uh, substantial subsidies. So at the present moment, these subsidies are not available to the private clinics. So I think one of the, the hallmarks of our Singapore system is the MediSave. I think it's a brilliant scheme because it doesn't go into a bottomless pit, doesn't go into a black hole, it goes into your account and you manage it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm really interested in this idea, which I, it sounds like a, a great idea. Just a, a few little questions. So presumably, if the account's in the patient's name, presumably the patient's a lot more vested in, in how the money's spent and trying to get good economy for what they spend, which which probably a good thing. That's right. You're looking for value and you want an opinion. You want maybe another opinion before you go and spend it. So it's like buying a car. You kick the tires, you check another model and you see, yeah, this is the one I want. This is the doctor I want. This is the prestige I think I should have. So it's good. So it makes you think about your health. And that's one of the failings I see in Australia is that we don't have a lot of transparency around health costs. So you go and see a surgeon, your insurance picks up the bill if you're privately insured and you have no idea how much it costs. Giving the patient the concept of value is probably a great idea. Yeah. So what we did last year is we did a benchmarking exercise to look at hospital bills for, I think, about 200 common surgical conditions. And they basically put benchmarks for, for the cost of these in different hospitals. And it's really good because it's really made it very transparent as to 
what is the lowest cost, what is the highest cost, and they used 25 and it's around about 75th percentile, that kind of thing. So that gave people a good idea as to, is the cost that I'm being quoted for this condition fair? Do I want to pay this amount or am I willing to pay more? Is that extra bit I have to pay worth the extra bit? And it gets the conversation going. It gives people a choice, an informed choice. Yeah. Does MediSave cover expenses associated with seeing your GP? So would it cover, say, the, the cost of consulting with your GP? Oh, yeah. There is a certain sum that is allowed to be used every year. And we can access those funds for patients with chronic disease only for chronic illness. Right. So whether they have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, prostate problems, and so on and so forth, yeah, we can access those funds. Great. So it is, it's been a great help, been a very great help, yeah. Yeah, I think in Australia, we sort of struggle between the government funding and private funding elements. So I think the concept of patients having better access to their own funds, pay for things, is, is a, a really good one. Well, what we have now is we do have MediSave as the, the base saving, and we have Another insurance scheme, which we pay into, where we pay premiums into, and that's called MediShield. So now we have MediShield Life, which is an insurance scheme that has been which is supported by the government. And that is really for use when we are admitted to hospital and we have to be staying there and having procedures done and pay for the cost of these admissions. So that's another layer that we have. And that's good because it allows much more flexibility. So what you have is you have a base saving, which is MediSave. And from the MediSave, you can take sums of money to buy an insurance into a larger pool. And that's a pooled insurance fund called MediShield, which which works well. It's been tweaked and now we call it MediShield Life. Lee, you mentioned the average days. It's quite a long day for Singaporean GPs, or well, for many anyway. What is work-life balance like for Singaporean GPs? And with that, what's the morale like amongst GPs in Singapore? I think when we first start out, we're young, we're energetic, so we tend to work really long hours. Then after a number of years, as we get older, we tend to find new partners, younger assistants who help us with our practice. And that's when we cut back. So for myself, I have afternoons off and I have uh, assistant doctors who help me in my practice. And I spent that time in the past with the, with the family. And now I spend a lot more time doing teaching and work with the college. And that's really good. It also gives time for myself and my wife to go for some exercise, to hit the gym, to go for walks, go for a swim. And, and that's good. Listen to music, play music, stuff like that. And so generally speaking, I think morale is good. I mean, we work hard, we gripe as all doctors will. But at the end of the day, I think we're quite happy with what we're doing. And although we do look at Australia and say, yeah, that's really nice. I'd like to learn a bit from that. Maybe we could have some of that here. <laughs> Last question, Celia. What do you think that the Australian GP and healthcare system does well? And what would you like to sort of copy about the Australian system? One thing I like about Australian system is that the breadth that you actually manage for your patients is just so incredibly wide. And the other thing I really admire about Australia is your Medicare system. It's really commendable. It's got true universal health coverage. And last but not least, I think the GP training in Australia is really, really fabulous. And it's something that we really want to look into and learn from and bring some back to our fair shores to enhance our training in Singapore. That's fantastic. See, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you tonight. I really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for being on the podcast. <music>